Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm one of the show's hosts, Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kellick. Hello, Rania. Hello, Kevin. And we're very pleased to have, as our guest this week, Raven Rakia, who is an independent journalist, and she just published a story that was published under the headline, uh, Rikers is Reforming solitary confinement with more solitary confinement question mark and uh that was the the nation gave it the headline and she wrote this story she investigated she looked at something called enhanced supervision housing units uh so we're very glad that you're here to talk about this uh, incredible story yeah thanks for having me i'm happy to be here and uh so uh i want to let you set this up uh what are Enhanced supervision housing units. These are um, being used in New York City as there's this pressure to reform solitary confinement. Yeah. So uh, the enhanced supervision housing units opened in February. Um, There's currently two opened units um, with 50 people in each, but they um, have about five total. Uh, Three of them don't have any people held in them right now. But um, they're basically a unit that was proposed by Commissioner Pond. It was one of his first proposals when he um, became commissioner last year. Um, and they were they were promoted as um, something that would be for the most violent people in jail. Um, so the people causing most of the violence in Vikers. And they would have enhanced provision um, by a higher guard to inmate ratio. And they would all, and there's like, it's covered with cameras everywhere, like in the showers. Um, there's a lot of surveillance in these units. And they have seven hours of out of cell time a day. So they're locked in their cells for 17 hours a day. And this was supposed to be, they were trying to like bill it as something that was supposed to be a solution to solitary confinement. Right. Um, but it's not, if it's worse is what these, the conclusion is from people who've been in it. Yeah. So they still promoted it as a reform um, to the jail. And it was, it was um, proposed first in July, but then very seriously, it was voted on and proposed in November again. And um, it was after that the Board of Corrections had been looking at solitary confinement and looking to reform it for over a year. So they were in this long process of trying to decide how much they should curb solitary and what limitations they should put on it. And then Commissioner Pont was appointed um, last year in June or no, in April. And, um, and then this was his first, um, proposal. Uh, so yeah, so it's, he promoted it as a reform that was supposed to be in the solitary confinement package, but in reality, it's, um, an extension of isolation and, um, people who are held there really hate it. And they, they, um, describe it as a very abusive, uh, unit. Okay, so, and the, response basically uh they were putting together a response to they believed violence on rikers and that's why the enhanced solitary these units became preferred isn't that correct right so so it was um sort of proposed differently to the board who had to vote on it and to the public to the public it was promoted as a something that would reduce violence on rikers by removing the most violent people from the rest of the population and putting them in a unit that was uh, had more supervision and 
uh, more of a focus on them. And then to the board, it was um, sort of presented as this is what we need in order to um, put in your solitary confinement reform. So um, in order to limit solitary confinement to what you guys want, which is 30 days, and to um, get rid of um, O time uh, for solitary confinement, we we need to make this unit um, uh, to uh, remove the most violent people. Um, or if we don't do this, then solitary confinement will not be possible without you know, violence increasing tenfold at the at Rikers Jail. How does this compare to, I don't know how familiar you are with what happened with people at Pelican Bay in California, but this strikes me as very similar to, to is this a new system at Rikers? Have they always existed? Has a system always existed? Or But now it seems people are more likely to end up uh, thrown in, in solitary you know, based on information, based on flawed, wrong information. I mean, is it, has it always been like this at Rikers? Um, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Has it always been like this? Like, does have this solid, has a solitary confinement uh, placement been like the enhanced supervision placement? Well, no, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I mean that uh, the comparison I'm drawing to Pelican Bay is this thing mm-hmm. where, People could go in, you know, your your pressure is to inform on people who are part of gangs and mm-hmm. get them, uh, and you can't get out of solitary unless you put somebody in, uh, you, you inform a prison guard or official that, you know, so-and-so is in a gang. And then that information, in return for that, you could use that to get out of solitary confinement in Pelican Bay Prison. But here at Rikers, it strikes me as very similar um, what I'm reading, and so I'm asking if you know h- how this system has been in place. Th- th- are the additions of these issues, these enhanced solitary confinement units, is this being worked into a policy that's already existed, where people were informing on each other, and you could get into solitary? All right, I understand now. Um, so it was a little bit um, more informal, I think, in New York. So people weren't—I mean, of course, people are encouraged to inform on others. Um, they definitely use jailhouse informants and Rikers to de- to determine, you know, who they decide is in a gang or not. Um, but it wasn't—it wasn't something that um, would necessarily get you out of solitary confinement. In, in New York, the um, before the reforms, the limit on solitary confinement was 60 days, so people could be sentenced up to 60 days. And then, technically, they, you know, the rule is that they would have to be put placed in another, um, in another unit. Uh, with this enhanced supervision units, it's a little bit different because people can be placed placed there for anything they've done in the past five years. So, for solitary, it was like you did you did something that was against the rules, and you you were sentenced to solitary for a number of days, and then you were out. So, it was for a specific thing that you did. Uh, for enhanced supervision, it's um, it's much more broad, and it's an indefinite placement. Um, so, it can definitely be used as a tool by guards, you know, um, if they want someone to act a certain way or to tell someone else. Um, it's def- it definitely can be easily more easily used. Um, as that sort of intimidation in, with the enhanced supervision unit. You know, and while we're on this particular subject of it, what I thought what I found really interesting was, um, like you just mentioned, how with solitary, it's like you ha- you usually do something like something simple. You do something wrong or something, you know, someone does something wrong, they'll put them in solitary, whatever right. you know they've done. Um, but in this case, it's the, the like and this this is such a creep, creepy like terminology, but they use predictive analysis 
to decide which inmates have a propensity of violence and are therefore eligible for the unit. Um, what does that mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a great question. People, people are basically asking the same thing. Like, what exactly does that mean? So they're basically trying to predict violence. And so, and there's, they're, they sort of promote it as saying that like, these people are just violent people. And therefore like, we're trying to find the violent people as if it's like a character trait um, instead of like violence being an action or a reaction to something. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, and that's one of the problems with ESH that a lot of people are talking about is that they're punishing people for things that they haven't necessarily done yet. They're punishing them for their prediction that this person um, has like, is just violent inherently or, um, or something like that. Uh, and so that's, yeah, that's one of the main problems with the unit um, is that people are basically being punished, not for what they've done, but for what they could do, according to DOC's um, analysis. So, so it's pre-crime. Yeah, it's, it's predictive policing or risk assessment. Um, yeah, it's very similar to, to these things that are coming in, being, becoming more and more popular in the criminal justice system. Really, yeah, it's a really disturbing trend. And de Blasio is, like, a really, really big fan of this. And I noticed, like, I noticed there was a couple supposedly, like, um, criminal justice advocacy organizations that seem to have helped or maybe support this in some way, shape, or form, which I find really shocking. Not necessarily. I mean, for the advocacy, like, nonprofit organizations and that sort of thing, a lot of them came out against the unit um, when they, when it was being proposed. I mean, so it, depending on, you know, how radical they go, some people are saying, if you do this unit, you need to make sure, you, you know, they were giving them advice, so it would be a less bad unit. I see, okay. And then other people came out against it um, full force. Um, but, yeah, Mayor de, Mayor de Blasio has, I mean, he's, him and Commissioner Pont, they're basically a team, you know, um, and he's promoted this unit and has talked about it, basically bragged about it um, since it's been open. So how much influence does a figure like Bill Bratton have in this being adopted in a correctional facility? I mean, because he brings this philosophy to New York of, of predictive analysis. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I haven't really um, I haven't really looked into Bratton's role in this whole thing. Um I, do, I mean, you know, Brett and Commissioner Pont, who's the DOC commissioner, and um, de Blasio, they all do press conferences together. I'm sure they're, um, they're in cahoots and, and sort of, you know, bringing forth these sort of reforms. Um, and uh, I'm sure they speak to each other about it. I'm not sure. But Commissioner Brett himself hasn't really talked much about the DOC reforms. Uh, if, it, if he does do anything, it's probably in the background. And also, I mean, should we, is this something that, that, um, is there potential or is it already happening that this could be, um, something that would spread to other correctional facilities, not just in New York, but like across the country, um, New York often, it does seem can be one of the first places where things are tried out before they end up spreading to other cities. Yeah, totally. So risk assessment is coming, uh, it's sort of like this new buzzword now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people have been considering it and, a various of different things like in Pennsylvania it's being considered right now as part of like sentencing reform so people would so basically saying that this analysis would show who has the likelihood of committing another crime and their sentence would um either like become longer or shorter because of it um oh wow yeah and in New York it's it's also used as part of um uh bail 
who gets bail or not. Um, so they have a risk assessment analysis um, that um, tries to analyze whether or not the, someone's likelihood of coming back. To what do you think they have a risk assessment analysis? Is this, a, is this some sort of like algorithm? Is there like a questionnaire? It's it's usually a questionnaire and more and some uh, questions are weighted more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so so for the DOC enhanced supervision risk assessment, we're not sure how they're weighted. So we're not sure which ones are more important than others. Mm-hmm. Um, for the for the bail one in New York, uh, you know, there are questions like. Do you have a Do you have an address where you go to? Um, do you ha- Do you have someone who can speak for you in court? Like, is there someone who shows up for your court? So, what happens is, uh, whether or not these things analyze these things are like accurate of whether someone comes back to court, it usually varies. But it it usually comes down on how marginalized the person is. If the person doesn't have a family that can show up to their court date because their family is working or whatever. Or if the person, you know, is homeless and doesn't have an address, they are more likely to be um, harmfully affected by these assessments. For people who are listening and maybe aren't as familiar, can you describe what uh, the conditions are when people are being put into solitary at Rikers? I mean, I know they have an actual particular set of characteristics because of how brutal Rikers is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... so- so solitary confinement records, um, mainly when people say solitary confinement, they're talking about the punitive segregation units, um, which are sort of the formal solitary confinement units at Rikers, uh, where uh, inmates are held in their cells for 23 hours a day. Only one inmate can be out at a time at, in the unit. Um, so if someone else is out getting, say, uh, health treatment, um, the, another inmate cannot leave their cell at that time. Um, and and but then there are also um, different isolation units at Rikers that are more of an informal uh, solitary where people can be held for anywhere from 17 hours to 23 hours a day, as well. And those are less. Um, they they just aren't when reforms happen. They only happen for the punitive segregation units. So other uh, units don't really see the, these reforms. Are they all? really hot and there's a risk of people suffering from this heat? Right. So in Rikers in general, it gets very, very hot in, in the summer and up to about October. There's no ventilation, no air conditioning, and and the cells are concrete. So uh, even just like the floor is like scorching hot um, and um, temperatures can go up to, you know, 100 degree temperature all the way through um, September is very common. Um, and then there's also, since it's right next to the airport, uh, there's a lot of noise pollution um, as well. And uh, since Vikers was a landfill for a while, uh, there's a lot of uh, terrible smells during the summer. So it's very, uh, yeah, it's a very difficult place to be. So uh, I want to ask you if you could share what this has done to uh, if you have any knowledge of what this done to groups that are working to reform solitary confinement, I do not imagine that this is where they want things to go. And what is the response of uh, of activist groups in New York? Yeah, I mean, uh, so before the ESH unit was um, voted into 
um, effect, there, I mean, over 100 people came out uh, to a public hearing saying that this, is, this was not the thing to do. You know, this was rolling back on solitary confinement reforms. I think most activist groups in New York want Rikers to be closed altogether, um, but they also call for solitary confinement in uh, the state to be uh, completely abolished or at the minimum um, for a maximum of 15 days. Oh, sorry, at the maximum for a maximum of 15 days um, as a, like a, a limitation of solitary confinement. So does New York City use the word solitary confinement when talking to activists about this issue? Or are they using some other term like administrative segregation? I mean, do they concede that this is the sort of thing and and acknowledge that it is as harsh as it happens to be? Oh, yeah. Uh, so the term they usually use is punitive segregation, which is like I'm so punitive, at least acknowledges that it's, um, you know, it's a punitive unit. It's for punishment. Um, but it's it's also just one of many units that actually hold people in solitary confinement. Um, uh, but it's the one that is the most um, restricted right now, at least. Uh compared to others, if that makes sense. Uh, so it's the one that people go to when they do something wrong um, and when they commit, do something wrong, quote unquote, when they commit an infraction and are being punished for that infraction, they go to punitive segregation. Um, but of course, New York also has administrative segregation um, and they have uh, various other isolation cells, enhanced restraints um, and uh, infectious disease units that uh, they sometimes people without diseases go into, um, you know, into extreme isolation, which is solitary confinement. They're, they're held between 22 and 23 hours a day with little um, interaction with other people. What do you think is the is is this basically adding a, a level of bureaucracy to putting people in solitary confinement so that they can uh, better justify placing these individuals and, and maybe preserve this power to put people in isolation? Yeah. So when the board of correction was um, looking into limiting solitary confinement, they, the department basically um, proposed ESH as a place where they can put, place people indefinitely um, and isolate them from most of the population. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think it's a way for them to uh, sort of go around the solitary confinement reforms Um now they have another place to put people um, that isn't as restricted as punitive segregation. And uh, I mean, even now that's, and that's what a lot of people were accusing them of doing when it was being proposed. And uh, even now they're trying to scale back even more on those solitary reforms and ask for certain overrides. Um, uh, so, so right now the reforms are that they must, sentences must be limited to 30 days and then they, the inmate needs a seven-day break outside of punitive segregation. Um, and then they, uh, pe people can only be placed in punitive segregation for 60 days out of six months. So right now they already have a 60-day override where they can um, override it if a person has been, quote-unquote, violent um, or threatening. And uh, they're also asking for an override for the seven-day break, which means they can put people back in punitive segregation um, and not do the entire seven-day break for certain infractions. Okay, and then the last question that I'll put to you is just mm -hmm. uh, a, a general uh, note, and then I'd like your reaction to how 
There really is, from from what I can tell from the, the, the little time I've spent looking at Rikers, there's little to no oversight of anything that goes there. There's there's no accountability. There's so much, so many ways that guards can get away with abusing prisoners. And so how do you see this issue affecting the way things are with no accountability for any criminal acts by guards at Rikers? That's a great question. I think um, w- the interesting thing that ESH did was it made it so random little things or random little rule breaking or um, defiance from the inmates can be seen as sort of a discipline uh, can be seen as like, okay, to, to, to take a very disciplined approach to it. Um, so like, for example, in my piece, um, once someone who was incarcerated there said that like, they're all locked down because they weren't wearing tank tops and the, and the, these things are sort of like arbitrary that the guards get to decide um, in that unit. And the way it's propo- the way it's promo- proposed to the board is saying, so now we have different ways to encourage um, inmates into good behavior. But really, it's they're being punished for random little things for any little defiance um, towards the guards. Okay, well, thank you for coming on our show to talk about your story. Uh, it's really, it's really good and uh, really important. And I encourage. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to say we encourage everybody to read it. You can read it at the at the Nation. Um, and the title of Raven's article is "Rikers is Reforming Solitary Confinement with More." And then it's with more solitary confinement? Question mark. But it's really, really good and really important, and you need to read it because. I think this is really like the future of, of where things are headed, um, which is really unsettling. Right, and thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. I'm joined again by Rania. Hello. Hey, Kevin. And we will not waste any time. We want to talk about everything that's crazy and going on with the protests on campuses across the country that have all been spurred by the University of Missouri. And I think we want to start by the positive. We want to start by the positive because there's some stuff that really frustrates us, but we want to talk about what we did like about what happened with Mizzou before we got into all of that. Yeah, so um, why don't you go ahead? Why don't you open it? You're better. You're better with the openings, Kevin. Okay, with so the, why don't you start the discussion? <laughs> so thank you. I I want to say that I'm very glad that the the black players showed the sort of power that uh, well the universities and colleges call them student athletes uh, that that these athletes have when they do take this stand. I'm not the only one making this point. Uh, Dave Zirin at The Nation has been probably one of the most prominent people talking about how this showed the possibilities of how NCAA players on any sports team could build solidarity and and make some kind of an impact on campuses around any kind of issue, whether it's... It doesn't have to be racism. It could be anything on your campus that you want to change as long as it's very serious and you could take the steps to build power and get athletes involved by having them threaten to strike and that 
will threaten the university with the loss of millions of dollars and they'll listen to you. Yeah, no, it's a huge, huge, huge um, lesson in the power of withholding labor, uh, which we don't see, you know, happening as much in this country. And I mean, it, it, especially around sports. Um, so that was a really big deal. The fact that those, you know, the students, um, uh, football students at Mizzou struck and they got, you know, they got their biggest demand, which was to get the um, the president of the university to resign over, I guess, his poor um, response to um, racist incidents on campus. Um, so that's something that should definitely, you know, be highlighted and should be looked to as um, like a model because um, what it comes down to is that withholding labor is what works, and that's the only reason they got what they wanted. And, um, and also, oh, 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 we, also. Don't, we, we don't have anything against people protesting. I'm not gonna no. tell, tell anybody to grow up. Um, we're not gonna do. I mean, you want to mention Alan Dershowitz and all these <laughs> other people who have just gone off the rails because people are protesting. Well, there's been yeah, there's been so there's been this huge backlash, and it's been like this this really just like almost fascist level, just just a hateful, angry backlash, but in the name of free speech from the right wing. Um, and just from like the most hypocritical characters like Alan Dershowitz calling students fascist. Um, and what they're going after is they're going after what is an undercurrent in left activism, um, which is, you know, this sort of hostility towards I don't want to say hostility necessarily towards free speech, but that's what it comes off as. Um, so I guess it kind of is. And they're just, like, picking up on that, and they're going with it. And so, like, the right wing has just been in this, like, angry outrage mode. And even, like, you know, like, center-right people are just trying to, like, use these protests and some of the more unfortunate tendencies among protesters um, to, like, to, like, sort of say that people on the left are all fascists and hate free speech and or or to like just kind of you know wag their fingers at students like you know like you guys got to grow up that's i think that the chicago tribune had an actual op-ed that said like something along the lines of you know these students have to grow up just like this really condescending patronizing sort of um way to to to, to go off on students who and i guess and then that's something else we can talk about that's we, we want to talk about it like at the same time there is something that does need to be discussed in the way some left activism manifests itself. Um, and we're seeing it happen across universities right now. And it's it, what it is, is it's like in the end, it ends up being really bad strategy. Um, and it, I think it ends up playing into these sort of right wing parodies or these right wing stereotypes of, of what they think the left is. And that is this this kind of like hostility towards free speech. Um and I mean, the initial incident that sort of like provoked the conversation that's really like really overshadowed um, what started out at, at Mizzou was the incident with the uh, the photographer from ESPN who was trying to take a photo af after the student, you know, after the president resigned um, in a public area, like a common space on the campus. And the students, like, who were being egged on, shockingly, by, like, a teacher, um, uh, were very uh, hostile to that and didn't want him taking their picture and started chanting, you know, reporters got to go and got really aggressive. And it was, it was uh, caught on video. And then uh, like near the end of the video, the person who was videotaping it like approached um, 
like he was like approached by a uh, professor of like mass media or something and was told or and she was telling him to leave and he was like i don't have to leave this is a public area and so then she was like you need to leave and then she's like somebody come help me get this reporter out of here like i think the, what she said something was like i need some muscle and that went viral and, you know, ever since then, it's been this conversation about free speech, and it's just kind of descended even further into some ridiculousness that we're going to talk about. Because the problem is that, like, th- this is a problem. This is a problem that needs to be acknowledged, because there's a lot of people on the left who just seem to be in complete denial um, or just want to pretend like it's okay. This kind of behavior is okay. Like, it's okay to say, wow, that, like, that that particular like behavior right there that particular like way of treating the media is not it's like unwise and a bad strategy and still support the sentiments of the protest you know what i'm saying and it seems like on the left there does there and it's it's getting worse i feel like there is this tendency to just like write anybody off who disagrees even slightly and so if you even like if you even you know criticize slightly like a certain tactic of protesters you're just sort of like you know pushed out you're purged you're no longer like a part of our team okay Um, Rania. so let's let's say that someone shows up to uh the 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 the, the, you're on campus you're holding a protest you're these mizzou students and i think i can tell people what you know, could have been done differently is so, you know, I'll, um, you be the media and, uh, and tell me that you want to interview me. Okay. Hi. Um, my name is Rania. Can I interview you? I'm a journalist. No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be speaking to media today. (laughs) Okay. No, like literally that is all the students would have had to do to talk to journalists. I would, I would, I would make a case that, You are not going to be harassed because they are not all writing for the Daily Caller. They are not all at Breitbart.com. They did not all come to terrorize your protest. Yeah, like that's another thing too. Is I think that there's some there's a different dynamic too. Like I I do feel like aside from this right the right wing echo chamber, which sort of exists in its own bubble, the more mainstream press, um, shockingly, has been very very sympathetic. I think to student protests which is a good thing it's not a bad thing at all they like and, and that's and that's, that's something that should be taken advantage of um and used to the advantage of protesters not something that should be shunned um and so after this happened after this whole like that 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 video you know went online and went viral it started this debate about um about how media should be treated and then you started just having like people saying ridiculous things and it, it's not the thing is like i don't want to I don't want to like slam students. I don't want to slam 20 year olds. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't, Oh my God. So smart when I was 20 and like did everything perfect. I mean, there has to be room for people to make mistakes. Right. Um, and that's fine. People make mistakes, but what I do see is I see people in the media. I've seen people in the media, like excusing it and legitimizing it. Like people who are, which is shocking because usually it's the opposite. Usually media personalities hate protesters. That's sort of like been the ongoing dynamic. So it's a bit jarring to see like mainstream reporters from the Washington post going to bat for protesters, but regardless they have been. And They've been basically saying, well, the media should, you know, like they have a right to keep the media out of public spaces. It's sort of been the sentiment I've been seeing. And it's very disturbing and unsettling. Um, and we've seen some disturbing and unsettling things happening at other campuses, too. And we should probably move on to talk about those. Oh, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I think that, uh, oh, there was one quick note that I think oh. we wanted to make and we're OK with making. And it's a general media thing. 
uh, where we're very surprised that some of the places where we are finding good reporting are places that are like outposts of right-wing thought that we would never, ever have guessed we would be sharing links uh, from. Uh, and like the Federalist. I mean, they have a reporter who actually did a FOIA request for police records on the on the poop swastika, on, on other things with reported incidents of racism. And, uh, and, and this is going to lead into our wider discussion about other campuses, but I don't know. Uh, one of the incidents that is actually in the police report, like, it really caught your attention, didn't it, Rania? Because... Yeah, it did. It was crazy. So, yeah, one of the incidents was, like, um, it, it was, like, it, leading up to the poop swastika, there was, a, like, a, a fight, an argument in the dorm, in that dorm between, um, between, like, some black students and a white student. And the white student reported an incident to the, to the administration because, like, the black student called him, like, like the n-word like but called the white guy like it, it was like he used it in like a really common way where he was just like bitch ass like n-word you know like it was like they were in an argument and just like he used that language but it was like a black student saying it to a white guy um and somehow that guy like the administration was saying that that was like the kid was saying it was racist and the administration was saying that that was offensive and they were also see it seemed like they were classifying it as anti-semitic which is weird um and then so after the poop swastika thing happened they immediately suspected and started talking about it was probably that black guy who said that which is like ridiculous like that's just like a weird crazy jump um but yeah, that that caught my attention, and I mean, and I just I think it kind of does shed light on the fact that that it, the administration at that school does, I mean, obviously clearly handles race, like racial incidences really badly. And so the reason why this would matter is well, one, we live in a country where you can be put on trial for rap lyrics, mm-hmm. um, and also people who hear that language and run the administration at the University of Mizzou aren't thinking the same thing that young people think when they hear those words. They are taking it uh, literally. And uh, and the policing, I think, is, a, is something that could affect uh, people of color on campus at University mean, of Mizzou. Yeah, it's something I mean, that those students mean, need to consider. You mean, yeah, you mean language policing. Yeah, the language policing. Yeah, so there's like students that okay. So this is this is the problem. This is the problem with this whole idea of of we need to be limiting speech, or we need to have like you know people people can't be using offensive language, or we need to be like language policing people, which does seem to be something. And I don't want to say all students. I don't want to paint all student protesters with a brush, but this is something that's been being communicated by at least some students involved in these protests. Okay, is that that there does need to be some sort of like. Um, some sort of like uh, clamp down on language in some sort of way, like like racially insensitive language. And while I understand like the reasons behind that, the problem with giving authority, giving an administration, giving an institution the power to police the language of people, it, the problem with that is that these institutions are flawed. Um, and they are, you know, they generally serve power. And so that sort of, dy- that sort of like those rules are going to be used against you. Those rules are not going to be used against racist students. Like for the most part, they're not, they're not going to be used to stamp out white supremacy. They're not going to be used to limit white supremacy. They're going to be used to limit activism. They're going to be, you know, from the left, particularly, they're going to be used to limit like people, you know, what people of color do. They're going to, and I mean, Palestine solidarity is the perfect example. Yeah. On 
on campuses, Palestine Solidarity is under attack by Zionist organizations um, and under attack by their allies in administrations and in, in, in like um, in um, in college administrations. Um, I mean, you can even take it, you know, bring it into an even broader context here if you want, you know, because like. There was one campus that was talking, with demanding like um, demanding rules against uh, uh, not just hate speech, but rules against racial insensitivity, like like language policing for racial insensitivity. And we'll talk about that. I think that was Amherst. Yeah, let's get to Amherst. <laughs> but so. well, I, what I just want to point out real quick is like is like look at look at Europe. Europe has laws against hate speech. Okay. You, the UK has laws against hate speech. Um, and the problem is hate speech can be really subjective, even though, like, there's there's clearly obvious cases. It can be really subjective. So in a lot of ways, it, there's sometimes when it can be, like, in the eye of the beholder sort of thing. But also, um, more importantly, in, in, in the UK, you know, UKIP, like, the far-right, like, political party that's kind of like KKKS is not being put on trial. Um, in France, that ha France has hate speech laws. And, you know, Marine Le Pen is not being, you know, is not being thrown in jail for her disgusting and vicious advocacy against refugees and against black people. Um, but, but BDS in France has recently been criminalized. Like, advocating for BDS has been criminalized. So, I just, that's just the point is that when you give governments or institutions the power Power to police speech, they're going. They're, you know, it's not going to work. It's going to backfire. Like the, it's very likely going to backfire. But anyways, let's. Yeah, let's yeah, and and we should have the First Amendment. I never thought I would actually have to say that sentence during <laughs> a uh, episode of our show, but it apparently became controversial this past week to express a belief in free speech. Well, it became very, it became very right wing. Yeah, it, so it became <laughs> identified with the right wing backlash to this and I, I just want to say that like people who are talking about the first amendment are not necessarily racists because they believe that everyone should be able to speak openly i still think that like there are consequences to what you say if you're speaking about holocaust denial let's let's you know really go after what is being said in terms of denying the holocaust and make it extremely difficult and unpopular for people to defend that viewpoint. Okay, um, that's how it's it. That's, that's essentially how it is. You know, the like, answer to speech is not to limit speech, but it's more speech. It's, it's and, and, yeah. and more speech is good. Like the thing is, is more speech is good for us. That's the thing that speech is the good. That's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for these student activists. It's a good thing, especially for people on the left. So at Amherst, <laughs> tell, tell people like Amherst is this liberal arts college. You were you were saying to me, and you and and there's this. Well, it's like it's it's kind of known for just like it's kind of known for being like the most like it's like a private liberal arts school, and it's sort of known for like having this strain of of, of to to of like this sort of student thinking to an extreme. Um, but yeah, Amherst. These students wrote. Oh shoot! I think I lost the page. I had I had it open. I've got it right here. Where'd it go? Do you have? Okay. Well, maybe you can. These, well, these yeah. students are like basically. They're saying that they're doing an uprising. They're doing an uprising. <laughs> They've launched an uprising, and they have demands. And I mean, I, the demands are just some of the most ridiculous things I've I've seen. Can you just, Kevin? Can you read number eight? I think it's number eight. Uh, all right, I'm scrolling down to number eight. Number eight is Dean Epstein must ask faculty to excuse all students from all five college classes. Five college classes? Okay. 
work shifts and assignments from November 12th, 2015 to November 13th, 2015, which has already happened. Yeah. Given their organization of and attendance at the sit-in. So, yes, I was was breaking this down for you. It is not a sit-in if the dean of your school is excusing everyone from classes, work, and assignments. You're not disrupting power anymore. You're now having a pep rally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, can you read the first demand? I think it's the first one where they ask for, they demand an apology for some interesting things. Yeah, Uh, So President Martin must issue a statement of apology to students, alumni, and former students, faculty, administration, and staff who have been victims of several injustices, including but not limited, to our institutional legacy of white supremacy, colonialism, anti-black racism, anti-Latin racism, anti-Native American racism, anti-Native indigenous racism, anti-Asian racism, anti-Middle Eastern racism, heterosexism, cis-sexism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, ableism, mental health stigma, and classism. Also include that marginalized communities and their allies should feel safe at Amherst College. Okay, like, I don't know how that's going to do anything to change the current, whatever the current issues might be. I don't know how that's going to fix anything now. And I I really, I don't understand why the head of Amherst needs to apologize for to past faculty and students he didn't, or she didn't, I don't know, didn't over, like, wasn't overseeing, like, at the college at the time. And all of these, I mean, just these apologies, this makes no sense to me. Like, an apology means nothing. Yeah, I want to repudiate all the genocide and racism and every horrible thing that the U.S. government ever did in history. Well, that would be different, too. Like, it, it would even be different than to ask the U.S. government to apologize for those things, because that at least makes more sense. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't know that you can really blame Amherst for like genocide. Sure. Right. Like, I mean, what, what, of a, like, what did this know? guy do to perpetuate the genocide of Native Americans? Probably nothing. Um, and so it's a really odd thing. But I think most importantly is in terms of building power on your campus, that's not a goal. That's not a, like you can't organize toward this and then actually win any power on campus. Right. Exactly. That's the, that's the, and that's the thing. Here's the thing is like, that, that should be the purpose and the outcome um, is to win. You know, if you want to win these battles, you want to win. Like you, you can't, you've got to have good strategy, you it's know, like, like, it's like you got those players to, to, I don't want to go back and talk about Mizzou, but you got the black players at Mizzou to join you. And then they did. And that's how you won power because you got them to come on board. So that's the sort of thing that Amherst students need to do. If there's something on their campus they want to change, I would think you would start from trying to fix that problem, and then you organize and you you create these objectives, but getting someone to apologize doesn't build you... You don't get towards having a more inclusive classroom or or whatever is... I I don't know what the issues are. I don't even know if Amherst has any issues if it's a really big liberal arts college. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't even know if it does either. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I'm sure. I'm sure there's something to go with. But like, yeah, it's like every single one of the demands. I'm pretty sure was asking for an apology of some sort. Um, but they probably already have classes on all of these isms. Like, and and so that's already built into your curriculum. So it's already like cognizant of diversity and having multiculturalism on campus. So it's really strange that uh, they, you know, feel so like, under siege, that they need to get the president to apologize. Um, not that's not to say that there's no racism on campus. 
there's racism on every college and university campus, but it's like, what are you going to do specifically to address those little things? Right, exactly. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I'm, and I'm not even saying like we have all the answers. Like, that's not even where where I'm going at with this. It's just like this kind of talk, like this kind of language, this this sort of like um, this sort of whole dynamic, this whole like way of thinking is. Um, it's just like it just reinforces the sort of parodies and stereotypes that the right wing has about the left. And so it's just it just is like, you know, when you have students like, for example, on another campus, um, which one was it? Well, uh, I wanted to talk about this University of Colorado rally. Oh, yeah, you can take go ahead and open up with that one. And I think you're probably going some other direction, but this well, is... Well, I was going to mention the one in the Chicago... Anyways, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's, so there's Loyola, which is taking uh, a page out of the book of University of Mizzou, but I wanted to mention that this this is distinctly different. So what happened is, at the University of Colorado, um, the a sociology class, they have whiteness studies... And which is weird, which is weird. And when I, I first saw that, I was like, wait, like White History Month? Like, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I think they're probably studying white privilege and people. <laughs> it's pe- like a white ally class or something. Okay. And so, so first off, that tells you about their campus. They already have multiculturalism curriculum on that campus. Yeah. And so uh, what happened is the Black Student Alliance became offended when the whiteness studies wanted to hold a... Uh, rally or a rally at the student center to show solidarity with these people at the university of Missouri. And, um, and, uh, this is what the said, we acknowledge that we should have contacted to, uh, the black student Alliance to see what they were already planning with regard to Mizzou. So they got the events organizers to apologize. Uh, while we understand that this does not excuse our actions, we learned a lesson improper allyship. We will still hope to work with Black Student Alliance to support your efforts and stand in solidarity with Black students. Um, uh, so, so there was that. But then the thing is, I didn't really understand. It made no sense to me what the issues were that Black Student Alliance had with this group of students because uh, it said they. Uh, so this one student, Paris Farabee, the senior and co-president of Black Student Alliance, said that she was upset the class did not consult her group or take into account the feelings and plans of African-American students on campus. It's not anyone that's being affected telling the story. It's only white people telling the story. And uh, said there's a slap in the face, and that's practicing racism, whether they want to believe it or not. They use their white privilege and oppressed voices and stifled voices that are experiencing this every day. And finally said there are students here in Boulder that are experiencing what the students at Missouri are experiencing every day. There are students being called, uh, used a racial slur. There are students here that are being followed. There are students that are being looked at crazy. There are students that are being arrested for no reason. So before you go say, let's support Mizzou and be on a bandwagon, how about you talk about the issues here? And it's, I, mean... I mean, and it's like, look, you've got issues on your campus that's fine, but this is about building solidarity with the people at Mizzou, which their issues are also your issues. Like, in organizing, it's supposed to be that way, isn't it? That, like, our issues are everyone's issues. There just seems to be, like, a, um... There's, like... There's, like, an etiquette that you're supposed to follow on the left that's, like, really performative. Um, It's all just, like, posturing. 
And I don't know, just like this kind of stuff just makes like solidarity seem so disingenuous. Like when you gotta follow all of these rules um, that are just kind of like seem to have no purpose. I mean, it's also this is a class. These are students. They're not activists, so they don't yeah. really know anything. And if you're the Black <gasps> Student Alliance and you're activists, you know, go to their rally and teach them what they should be doing and and show well, that's like what activists in general it's like and i mean because i feel like that's gonna prompt uh well it's not the you know it's not up to black people but it's not black people shouldn't have to teach white people and no one's saying that because i feel like that's going to be the immediate response but as activists when you're an activist that is your responsibility is to teach people right um regardless of what like what color you are that's my you point know, that's, that's what activists are supposed to do and so and that's another i mean that's a thing that like you know and that's that's about you know you have to give people room to evolve too like people don't come into this stuff knowing all the right language especially like i'm sorry but this language about like this the language around privilege and the language around like you're hijacking and co-opting movements and appropriation and like this stuff is very people don't it's kind of elitist like it is but people don't come into organizing people don't come into activism knowing those things um and they shouldn't like be i feel like it's just like wrong to reprimand and punish them for like not having the perfect language or for not doing everything exactly how you want them to. I'm totally perplexed that any group of people wouldn't be able to hold a solidarity rally. We, you know, and would it be required to get permission from the black student group? I feel like that would be like a positive thing. I give, I I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of like, like imagining like if I was a person of color and I was in black student Alliance and I saw a bunch of people in a whiteness studies class, go out and demonstrate, I'm, I want to say that I would believe that was a positive thing to do, that that they were making it, uh, like, like showing that they actually got it, that people need to be out in the streets protesting. All right, so this is a good discussion. I think it's definitely worth having, and I think there needs to be more of this honest and open debate about the tactics that are being used by campus groups. Uh, well, I think also like an issue with broader left activism because I mean a lot of the things that are happening aren't isolated to just campuses or students. Like it's not like unique to them. I think these are just kind of things that happen in left activism. They're just this is a pattern. I've seen this like in other you know other areas of left activism as well. Um, but yeah, it does, I'm glad that we're talking about it. And although you and I agree largely, like we're not necessarily debating me and you. Um, and it's okay like if people who are listening disagree with us. Like that's fine. You know, I'm not. We're not like we're not saying we we know everything and we're perfect. And if you disagree, you know, get out. Um, just that, like, I think that it's really important that we be open to having more open discussions about this stuff without you know clawing each other's eyes out. Yes. Uh, and so there's there's an article that I'm very fond of. I want to tell people that if they want to read more about where we're coming from. Go to the socialist worker. This is a, uh, we read from this before on a previous episode. It's called "Fighting Racism and the Limits of Allyship," and it is written by the authors are Curie Peterson Smith and Brian Bean, and they made a, a, a general argument about why they favor solidarity over allyship and and the, the limitations of of allyship. And basically talked about how there needs to be a class analysis in any sort of discussion of of organizing. And that usually is missing. When we have a focus on identity, we're not talking about it. And we're creating friction 
you know, where we're, we're there's there's racism and then there's like class, but like you're letting those be like two distinct things, and that's enabling people and power structures to keep us even more divided. Well said. So to move on, we want to spend a few minutes or uh, whatever we have left in this hour-long episode to talk about the Center for American Progress and uh, Netanyahu. Uh, and then you've got some updates on what's happening with violence and horrible brutality in Israel. And so I'll just put it to you. I'm going to tee you up here and say, I felt like Benjamin Netanyahu successfully colonized the Center for American Progress. (laughs) That's a great way to to put it. Yeah, so um, Benjamin Netanyahu came to the U.S. um, this week, and he uh, spoke before he was he was hosted by the Center for American Progress, which purports to be a progressive think tank that's like attached to the Democratic Party. Um, and the reason that this was outrageous is because if you're attached to the Democratic Party and you are giving a forum, an open forum for the Dem- for the the leader uh, of a country that has been completely hostile to your own leader, um, and by that, I, I, by that I mean Barack Obama because he's the leader like basically the leader of the Democrats right now. Um, it's just outrageous. It's really, it's really crazy. It's like, why would you do that? And it was like a conversation they were hosting. It was billed as a conversation, but it wasn't a conversation at all. The leader of the Center for American Progress, uh, Neera Tandon, um, basically just like for an hour um, sat there like nodding along and smiling and giggling like a like a child i'm not joking i don't i don't mean that in a gendered way i just mean like a child <laughs> like like who was like meeting their hero like like you were meeting a your star like the the pitcher of your favorite baseball team or something and just like completely like like mesmerized um and just let him for an hour like just spout the most outrageous lies um, without challenge. Like Netanyahu said the craziest thing. Like he said at one point that like there haven't been any new settlements in 20 years. Um, Like just like, and at one point he literally like he dared the room to Google it. He was like, he was just like saying outrageous things and then then daring the people in the room to Google it um, because he was so confident that he wouldn't be challenged. Um, And nobody did like nobody challenged him. But, um, but anyways, I mean, the whole point was basically to give Netanyahu an opportunity to, like, repackage himself and Israel to a progressive audience, a liberal audience, um, that is increasingly hostile to Israel and does not, like, is, is unsympathetic to Israel um, at the base. I mean, the, the base of the Democratic Party does not like Israel. Um, and it's, you know, it's 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 getting worse in that respect um and you know israel's becoming increasingly aligned with the republican party that's not to say that that is reflected at all in democratic leadership um obama has been probably one of the most pro-israel presidents in u.s history um he's currently you know regardless of like the weird more superficial um back and forth between him and netanyahu like he's been really down with israel and he is right now negotiating with israel raising their 3.1 billion dollar a year military you and u.s military aid to well israel's asking for five billion dollars a year or uh, so yeah the obama's like and obama's actually considering it so you know there's no like um there's no rift between the u.s and israel right now but that said you know it's increasing with the democrats and so there was a lot of progressives and liberals like protesting netanyahu being hosted at cap 
um, including people with an inside cap, like internally, um, who were really upset by it and pissed off because like, um, because they weren't really, they weren't um, asked about it in advance, and then they were even more angry because uh, the way that they're that Nira Tandon like did the, you know, quote unquote conversation was basically just like letting Netanyahu do a monologue. Um, and I do just want to mention also that the, you know, and this is probably one of the m- more important points about this whole um, debacle is. That Nira Tandon is a, you know, she's a, she's a Clinton operative. Um, she's very pro Hillary Clinton. She used to be an advisor, I think, like her communications advisor for her 2008 campaign. And part of Hillary Clinton's strategy, um, you know, part of her campaign for president, and I think this will become more apparent once she wins the primaries, which she probably will. Um, is is like this idea that she's going to be better on Israel than Obama. She's like basically embracing Netanyahu. She even wrote an op-ed for the forward uh, declaring her loyalty to Netanyahu and saying that she's going to fix what, Netanyahu, what Obama has broken. So that's part of Hillary's campaign. And, and the Center for American Progress is full of people who you know, see that Hillary is likely going to win and they want positions in her administration. And so um, that that's kind of like a part of why they sort of bent over backwards um, against the will of people who um, who are progressive um, of against their own base to like host this this right wing madman and like and just like give him the floor to say whatever he wanted and ask him the most softball questions. I mean, at one point, Nira asked him. Um, I like have to read this question because it was just so outrageous uh, that you almost couldn't believe it. She asked him, sorry, I'm going to it. She asked him, quote, uh, there's many areas where we progressives can learn lessons from Israel. Uh, and then she had like with a wide smile, she goes, Israel's military has been inclusive, uh, inclusive of women for a very long time. Are there lessons in that space for us in the United States that you can share with us? Like, <laughs> those were the kinds of questions that she asked. So, um, so yeah, it was like a shit show. But the point is that she basically did that. She's not an idiot. She's not stupid. She's not like a ditz. Even though she's, I mean, I'm sorry to say, she acted like a complete, like, she acted like an idiot during this interview. Like, you would have thought she didn't know anything about the issue. And she just giggled. Um, like, so she's not a stupid person. You don't get to be the head of CAP by being an idiot. So, I mean, she was just, like, I, I imagine... That was like a performance um, for, you know, her her Clinton ally, like her for, you know, for, for Hillary Clinton. Um, so, yeah. And, and APAC pressured like APAC and, and Israel and Israeli Israeli government like lobbied cap to pressure them to, to host him. So this is also a part of Netanyahu's strategy because Israel understands they're losing progressives. And so I guess he thought that he could like win them back, which I don't think he can. But whatever. Um and then, you know, lastly, what I do want to mention is Cap is, is, is a, it seems like is a bit of a tyrannical place. Um, this is the same woman, Nira Tandon, who was responsible for like censorship among her own writers because APAC didn't like the reporting they were doing on Israel um, a few years ago uh, by people like Ali Garib and um, Eli Clifton and even Matt Iglesias, believe it or not. So, um, so yeah, she like instituted a policy of basically like special review for any Israel posts and they would like take, you know, like they would start like taking things in one case, they actually did uh, remove several parts that mentioned Israel of like a report that Ali and, um, and Eli wrote and you should go, I mean, Glenn Greenwald had an article at the intercept about it. He, they were, they like were leaked this batch of emails showing the level of censorship that was taking place on behalf of APAC at the center for American progress. So 
that happened this week. That's that story um, in a nutshell. Okay, we do need to wrap, but if you yeah. wanted to squeeze in a mention of brutality in Israel, I mean, I think... Yeah, well, yeah, I just will mention this. I Things in, in Israel and Palestine have continued to escalate. Um, Israel, I mean, Israel's killed over 80 Palestinians since October 1st. Um, some of them were attacked, some of them were people who were attacking um, Israelis, like in knife attacks, but even they... Um, well, Amnesty International like did an investigation and and determined that that like many many of the people who have been killed were summarily executed, um, and not I mean not all of them having been attackers, but the ones who even did attack, uh, they were executed even when they didn't like it's like they didn't pose a threat, like um, at all, <laughs> uh, or like after they'd been like subdued or even even like at times where they maybe had a knife but were really far away and they were just like executed um, with several like in a, in a hail of bullets uh so that's continued to happen and this week it got it went even further there was like israel in, in hebron things are insane uh, the place is basically under israeli siege um and israeli soldiers actually attacked a hospital in hebron uh yesterday or the day before yesterday and um they like uh, over like two dozen israeli soldiers dressed up as palestinians entered this hospital to go apprehend a man who was recovering from a gunshot wound who they say attacked um, a settler um and uh, and they so they they came in um, dressed as Arabs, dressed as Palestinians, and one of them was in a wheelchair, uh, pretending to be pregnant, like dressed as a pregnant woman. And that's how they got into the hospital. And once they got in further, they basically also got their M, like they also basically also got M16s um, that were hidden in the belly of the pregnant woman and underneath the wheelchair she was sitting in. She wasn't actually pregnant, obviously. And they like were when it went going looking for this man, and they ended up shooting and killing his cousin um, before they arrested him in the wheelchair and left. Um, this is like an attack on a hospital. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's insane. They just like killed an innocent man who was like coming out of the bathroom they just shot him um so that's what's happening in palestine right now and then today um after like in the past several in the past couple weeks 18 palestinians in hebron alone have been killed by israeli forces and so today two israeli settlers a father and a son were shot and killed um uh, by an assailant and they were you know when they were like in their vehicle um and israel's freaking out and it's just like i mean it's awful like the violence is awful but it's completely avoidable um and, I mean, Israel's the one that has all the power, and they have the power to stop it. But, you know, instead, they continue to escalate. And so, of course, there's going to be a tit-for-tat, you know? And we're, um, we're recording this on November 13th for yes. people who are listening. So, uh, if there's if there's anything else... I mean, uh, no, well, yeah, we're, we're over time. We're so. all over time. But I do want to just say for people who are listening that uh, my second exchange with chelsea manning is up at shadowproof if you want to read it it's under the headline letter from leavenworth chelsea manning discusses personal and emotionally tough letters from trans people uh, again uh, this continued a very uh en enlightening exchange and and very um inspiring exchange that i've had with uh chelsea manning so uh take a look at that if you haven't read it and i guess again thank you for listening to our show um we'll be back next week <laughs>